Uh, let's bow our heads together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, for this, this morning, this day you've given us. Thank you, Lord, we can come together as a church. We can worship the name of Jesus. We can sit at your feet. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would speak to our hearts and our minds. That Lord, you would help us to cut out any distractions, anything that, anything that we're worried about, burdened with, distracted by. And that Lord, you would focus our hearts on you. May you be glorified today. And we ask this Jesus in your name. Amen. I know last week I kind of mentioned some things about parenting and family and stuff, but I, I have to admit this, and I don't know if you share the same feelings. Any of you discover that it's, it seems easier to help other people with their problems than it is dealing with your own? Can you all relate to that? If you discover that, it's much easier to tell somebody some things that they need to do and not deal with your own mess themselves. Right? That, that, that seems to be the case. We have a saying for that, right? What's that saying? Easier what? Said than done, right? It's easier said than done. It's easy to tell somebody what they need to do. It's much more challenging to do it yourself, right? There's another saying, and that we've kind of, maybe you've thought of this, and you, you're, you're very well acquainted with the saying, do as I say, not as I do, right? We're all familiar with that saying. And we all can be guilty of that, right? As parents, it's easy to tell your kids what to do, ignore the things that you see that we shouldn't be doing, right? Do as I say, not as I do. On the flip side, there's another catchphrase that I think we're all familiar with. Monkey see, monkey do, right? What does this familiar saying speak to? The powerful influence of what? Modeling behavior, right? What you see, you would do. There's a, there's a, uh, you know, a lot of studies and a lot of things have been written about the power and the influential power of modeling behavior. If you see someone doing it, it's, you're more influenced to do it yourself, right? Parents present models of behavior for our kids. I mentioned that last week. I've mentioned that before. Right? We leave impressions for our kids to follow. And parents, it's easy to tell our children what to do, right? It comes very naturally. As soon as we walk, come into that door after work, maybe the first thought is telling our kids what to do. Wake up in the morning, maybe the first words we utter to our kids is what? Telling them what to do, right? It's easier to do, easier to say something. It might be a little bit more challenging to do it, but it's more meaningful to our children if we show them what to do, right? We can tell them how they ought to be, tell them what to do, but we need to uphold ourselves to a higher standard than what we communicate to our kids, right? So we want to model the behavior. So if we want to show them something, we want them to learn something, we need to be prepared to do it ourselves, right? But it's more than just simply modeling behavior. Here's a, a quote I found about leadership or, or teaching. The mediocre teacher tells. 
The good teacher explains. The superior teacher demonstrates. The great teacher inspires. What is this saying? If you want someone to learn something, they need instruction, explanation, demonstration, but also inspiration, right? You need to lead them to see a reason to act or a reason to change. If you want your child to change something or do something, you need to show them and inspire them to want to make changes, right? So like that. A mediocre teacher tells, a good teacher explains, superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires. But I think there's an element missing in this quote. And I think that's enabling, right? You can inspire someone to action, but if they're not equipped or able to do it, you'll only get so far, right? If you tell your children to do something, but you tell them to do something that they're not equipped to do, they're not capable of doing it, there's only so much you can expect from them, right? I remember uh, I was thinking about this in middle school. Um, I had a group of church friends who really got into dancing, okay? They really got into dancing, and even at church, they would, they would be, like, they would, they would dance, and they would show their dance moves and stuff. And I remember thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. I wish I could dance like that. But I was a little too insecure, a little too um, afraid to ask them, hey, can you teach me how to dance like that? So I did my own research. Now, this is before YouTube, TikTok, and stuff like that, right? So I did my own research. So back when MTV showed, like, actual music videos, I had a VCR. I don't know if you all know what a VCR is. And I got a VHS tape got that blank tape, stuck it in the VCR. Anytime I saw a video with some dance moves, I recorded it. And then I would play it back. I ran that tape down, and I would be in my room. No one was in the room. I had a mirror in there, and I would watch the dance moves. And I would pause it, rewind it, frame by frame, trying to get the dance moves. What did they do with their feet? And then I'd practice it in there. Now, I don't know if I was any good but I was the best person in that room. I was the only person in that room. But I was too scared or embarrassed to ever do it in front of anybody else. So I really kind of just wasted my time. I had the inspiration. I had the model. I had those videos of the dance moves. I had the inspiration to want to be but there's one thing I lacked. I lacked rhythm. <laughs> I lacked the body movement to be able to do it. I lacked that um, confidence to dance. What I found amazing, what I find amazing, is that we have a God that not only just tells us what to do, not only instructs us, he modeled for us. He inspires us. And he enables us. Why do we believe? I've been, I mentioned that question last week. The reason, the title of the message is the reason we believe. Why do we believe? Why do we do what we do? Why should we listen to everything that we've been hearing and talking about and what Paul's been mentioning? Why should we believe? 
It's more than just about believing in a guy named Paul and what he says. The reason we ought to believe is because of Jesus Christ. Because of who Jesus is. What he has done. What he continues to do. And what he will do. The reason we believe is because of Jesus. Jesus, Think about it. Jesus' disciples experienced radical transformation. They radically transformed the way they lived their life. Why? Because they saw, they experienced, they saw their, their Lord, not only how He lived, but what He said and what He demonstrated. And they passed it down to the church. And we bear that same mantle today. We bear that same burden today. Now we spend a lot of time in the last four months. Can you believe it's been four months? April already? And we've been talking about humility, this theme about humility, serving others. And I wondered, is this, sorry, I think I kept hitting that, huh? Wow, okay. There we go, let's go back to here. I wondered, is this possible? Is it possible for the church to have such humility, such unity, such selflessness? Maybe you walked away last from last week's message and thought, is this possible in our family to have such unity, such humility towards others, such service towards others, right? Is it possible? Paul believed so. Paul certainly had the hope that this was possible, or else he wouldn't have been pleading it to the church over and over again, right? He thought it was possible. Why did Paul believe that the church can have such humility, such, such unity, and such service towards others? Why did he have such high expectations? Because Paul had a model. His inspiration. Paul had the audacity to charge the Corinthian believers to what? He says, be imitators of me as I also, what? Imitate Christ. What boldness from Paul. He said, look, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul lived out the challenge. He had his inspiration. He knew he, the model of Christ. He says, look, I'm following that. You guys follow me as I follow Christ. And the attitude Paul charges us from the previous verses is found in Jesus. Here's the brilliance. Here's what I want you to come away with. Well, one of the things. The brilliance of our Lord The Lord doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Think about that for a moment. All that Paul has told the church to do, Jesus has shown himself. He's done himself. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off. Look at verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
Here's what Paul says to the church. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, all that Paul charged the church to do, if you go back to the previous verses, in verses 1 and 2 and 3, all those things he charged the church to do, he says, this attitude that I told you about is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is your model. He is your inspiration for the attitude you ought to have. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 5 is very important. Verse 5 sets the tone, sets up the rest of the verses, verses 6 through 11. It's key to understand the rest of the passage, verses 6 through 11. Now, scholars believe six, verses 6 through 11 was some kind of hymn of the early church. That verses 6 of them must be some kind of hymn from the early church that what they had. And you ask, well, why do you think, why do they think it's a hymn? When we read it in English, we, not be, we may not be able to distinguish whether this was part of a song or part of a creed of the early church, right? Because we're reading it in English. But scholars, they read in the original language and they look at the context, they look at the syntax, they look at the words that was used And by that study, they make a conclusion or they assume that they they have a good guess that this was probably some form of hymn or creed of the early church. And there's many examples of this throughout the New Testament. Kind of imagine for a second. Imagine if you're writing a letter to someone. And in your letter, you quote a known song of the day. Right, You quote some lyrics to a song. Whoever is reading that letter would probably, if they know the music, would indicate, oh, they're quoting a song, right? If someone was to ask me about my thoughts about the afterlife for a second, right? And in my response to them, I say, well, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, what comes to mind? Anyone know? What am I quoting? How great thou art, right? You know, because you know the song. So you can identify, oh, in his response, he's including them some lyrics to a song. So as the scholars are looking at these passages, they get a good indication this could quite possibly be an early church hymn or a creed. Because remember, at the time of the early church, they didn't have the New Testament, right? 
Right, the writers, they're writing letters, they're writing the Gospels a little bit later on. So in the beginnings of the early church, they very well may have had these confessions of faith through song, through these creeds. So scholars believe that verses 6 through 11 is part of a hymn. Whether Paul wrote it or someone else wrote it, we don't really know. But this passage, verses 6 through 11, is very deep theologically. If you kind of look at it, you may read it and say, okay. But if you really think about it, there's some deep theological truths here. At the same time, this, cha- this passage can be very challenging to translate and interpret. There can, be very, there can be a lot of difficulty in translating this passage. How many have ever had experience translating before? Right? Whether it's from one language to another. Maybe every Sunday you're having to translate what I say to Eng- from English to English. I don't know. But what are the difficulties of translating from one language to another? For one, words have different meanings, right? Some words can have different meanings depending on what context. And then when you're translating from one language to another, sometimes some words don't cleanly translate to another language. Some languages, they don't have a word for certain things, right? So part of the study of scriptures and scholars, what they do, they look at the definition, they look at it, and they try to get the best interpretation of a passage, and I mentioned this, this passage is a little difficult because some of the words and phrases that Paul uses can be a challenge to interpret, to be a challenge to translate. So what do you do if you're, you're studying Scripture? What do you do when you come across some phrases, some words that could be a challenge to interpret? So just a little, just a little tips here about studying Scripture. In those kind of situations, here's some, some tips for you. First, try to understand the definitions Okay? Try to understand the definitions, the grammatical original use of the words. Try to understand how it was used within that contest to the best of your ability. You use a dictionary, a Bible dictionary, not Webster's dictionary, right? You're looking at a dictionary that translates from the original language. See how they're used by the author and by other occurrences throughout Scripture. If you're wondering, how do I do this, Pastor Mike? We can tell you. Pastor, Mike, Pastor Andy, Pastor Mike, no, myself. Others can tell you how to do this. But you want to see how do these terms, how are they used in other verses, right? Thirdly, understand the context of the passage, right? If you come across a word or some things that are troubling, look at the context of the passage, what's happening before, what's speaking of it afterwards, understand the situation. And then fourthly, is it consistent with the whole of Scripture, when you're trying to get an interpretation or translation, you want to arrive to one that's consistent with all of Scripture. Right? You want to be careful of making conclusions that aren't necessarily there in the passage. So when we're looking at this passage, we're going to do all those things. And we're going to divide the passage, verses 6 to 11, into two parts. Today we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. We're going to look at the humility of Christ. Next week, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11, the exaltation of Christ. But verses 6 and 7, now this is, can be a challenging two verses to interpret um, because of the words and phrases that Paul uses. As I said, we're going to look at the humility of Christ. Verses 6 talks about, Paul goes on and says, who although, referring to Jesus, referring to Christ, He existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now we're going to break down these, these verses and look at some of these, these words and these phrases. The first thing we're going to look at, he existed in the form of God. What does that mean? That word existed. The original means to be. Denoting originally a state or condition still subsisting in contrast to what is temporary or accidental. The word expresses continuance of an antecedent state or condition. You're thinking, well, can I have a a dictionary for what you just said? (laughs) Of your definition, right? The NASB translates exist in the form of God as existed in the form of God. I think maybe New King James Version translates it a little better. They they phrase it as being in the form of God. Of God. Why do I say that's a better translation than existed in the form of God? Because in our English mindset, right, when we hear of something that's phrased in the past, sometimes we think, well, that was just in the past, right? When it says he existed in the form of God, sometimes we may think, oh, that's past tense. So he was in the form of God. But what it's meaning here is not that he was and then is no longer. Right? In our minds and past, as we think something in the past, it may not be now. But a better way to say it is, he was being in the form of God. Meaning, going back to a past moment describes the condition. But not necessarily that it stopped there and changed, but it continued. So when he says, existed in the form of God, is being in the form of God. In that moment, that time, he was in the form of God. You following me? I know this is a little bit like English class. I apologize, but I think we've got to get to this to understand the passage. Then he says, in the form of God. What does he mean by form of God? When you think of the word form, we usually think of what we see, right? We look at the shape. We look at the outward appearance. We think that's the form. But there's more to this meaning of form than just the appearance, the Greek word inform here, morphe, is implies an essential character as well as the outline. It suggests unchangeableness. The form by a person or things that strikes the vision. In other words, the outward display of the inner reality or substance, that which may be perceived by the senses. So when you see a form, it's more than just the appearance, but it portrays the substance as well, the inner quality of what you see. For example, we can all change our appearance, right? We've all changed our appearance this morning when we woke up, hopefully, right? Hopefully what I'm seeing now isn't what you, you, you rolled out of bed in, right? You maybe changed your clothes, Maybe you got dressed, you, got, you, you showered up, you did your hair, whatever it is. You changed your appearance. But your form remains the same. Halloween's coming up, people wear costumes, right? Whatever you're going to wear a costume with, whether it's going to be a, a, I don't know, what's, what's, you're going to dress up as a coronavirus or something, I don't know what you're going to be, right? You're going to change your appearance, but your form remains the same. You could dress up like a dog. You can walk on all fours, but your form is the same. You are a human, a human form. That doesn't change, right? Interesting, this word for 
form, morphe, only appears one other time in Scripture. Two, if you include the long ending of Mark. There's, a, there's kind of two endings of Mark and the longer ending and some dispute whether that was original to Mark or not. But if you take that part out, there's only one other time this, this word is used in this manner. And both instances refers to Jesus. So Jesus, and it's a little interesting anecdote here. I don't know, do I have time for this anecdote? I don't. All right. I'll save that anecdote for Friday night, okay? Friday night, I get a little more into Bible study, get a little bit more into the, the message as well, so I'll encourage you to come Friday night, okay? So Jesus, being in his God form, he was not God alone, meaning like Jesus, it's not saying Jesus was the Father, but he was saying in that time, he was in his divine nature, his divine form. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here we have some very deep theological truths about Jesus. He existed in his divine nature, his divine form, and he was equal with God. That's a foundational tenet, foundational belief to understand of the Christian faith about who Jesus is, his divine nature. Jesus was not just a man who lived on this earth, who was a good teacher, but he was divine. He was God in the f- and came in the flesh. He was in his divine form. He was equal with God. The Apostle John, he writes in, his, in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word what? was with God, or was with God, and was God. He was in the beginning with God, a foundational belief for all Christianity. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's very foundational for us to understand why do we believe in Jesus? Jesus just wasn't just a person. He was divine. He was equal with God. And then it goes on, it says, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now here's one of those challenging phrases in this verse. What does it mean that Jesus didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped? That word grasp, meaning snatching, the act of seizing or robbery, a thing to be seized upon or to held fast, retained. Now this is the only occurrence in the New Testament with this term like this. So you understand, so you're trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? Well, let's read on. Verse 7. It says, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Again, what does Paul mean? That he emptied himself. What does that mean? How how many, did you empty yourself today? Don't answer that question. That word emptied is a Greek word meaning to make empty, to pour out, to make void or render useless or of no effect. Well, that just opens a can of worms. What does that mean? Well, let's kind of catch up our context here. So we have Jesus being in the form of God, his divine form, didn't regard being equal with God as a thing to be grasped or something to be grasped or seized. Rather, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, 
being made in the likeness of men. Now, there seems to be a contrary connection with seizing and emptying, right? He didn't seize being equal with God, but he what? He emptied himself. What does this all mean? Well, let's continue to read. Hopefully, we'll get a better understanding and meeting. It says, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Now, again, here are two words we want to pay attention to, form and likeness. Here it says, form of a bondservant. Yes, this is the second time this word morphe is used, and again used to describe Jesus. The second Greek word is used to describe what has been made after the likeness of something, where it says in the likeness of men. So here's the understanding. Jesus took the form of a servant. It's interesting. This hymn or Paul, whoever wrote this hymn, didn't say he took the form of man, but he says took the form of a servant, the nature of a servant. He took on the nature of a slave. I don't know if you can capture that. Think about that. The very nature of a servant, of a slave, Jesus took on. Remember what verse 5 said. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus took on this attitude, this nature of a servant. And he came to be in the likeness, the appearance of of a man. Now let's put this together. And being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul emphasizes the previous verse, stating he was found in appearance. That word appearance is schema. We, we, we brought up that verse, that word all the way back in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. That word schema, don't be conformed. Don't pattern yourselves after the world. But Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. So let's visually, let's kind of put this picture together for a second. We have this humility of Christ. Jesus, his divine nature, being in the form of God, was equal with God. So you have these parallel statements from Paul. He was in the form of God. He was equal with God. That was his divine nature. That was his preexistent nature. That was his condition. That's who he was, or now he is. But he didn't see his equality with God as something to be grasped. And here we see, again, if you see the screen, there's three parallel complementary term or phrases not to be grasped he emptied himself and he humbled himself he didn't see equality with god something to be grasped but what did he do he took on the form of a servant the nature of a servant the nature of a slave he emptied himself and he became in the likeness of man he took on the appearance the form of a man or the appearance of a man the likeness of man. And he humbled himself. He he was found in the appearance of man. So we see these parallel terms. I think this helps us get a grasp of these 
these little difficulty words and phrases. Now, if you think about it, if you look at the fall in the garden, right? You remember the story of Adam and Eve? Do you remember what the temptation for Adam and Eve was? It wasn't just because there was some fruit there that looked good, right? It wasn't just because of the apple or whatever fruit it was, passion fruit, whatever it was. What, was. what was the temptation? It wasn't the fruit itself. But the serpent tempted Adam and Eve is what? You will be like God. God is trying to get over on you. You can be like God. He knows that if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like him. That was the temptation. Tradition tells us Satan, same thing. Right? Tradition belief of Satan was that he was an angel, but he was a fallen angel because he aspired to be like God. Many of us face that same temptation today. We want to be like God, but not in a good way. I mean, we want to be in control of our life. We want to be able to tell God what we want and how we want. We want that authority to be like God. How many religions and beliefs have this idea of that you will be God, right? Here in this passage, Jesus didn't see being equal with God as something to be seized or taken for himself. He didn't forfeit his divine nature, but he took on the nature of a servant. Jesus poured himself out. He humbled himself by taking on human flesh. What Jesus did was contrary to the source of temptation from the very beginning. When man wanted to be like God, when Satan wanted to be like God, Jesus didn't seize seize his divine authority for himself, but rather, what did he do? He humbled himself. He poured himself out. Perhaps even denied his authority to be obedient. When we consider that challenge of why should we believe? Pastor Mike, we, we, we hear these things. The Bible tells us how we ought to live and the change that we need to make. But why should we do it? Why should we be compelled to change the course of our life and how we live our life? Why should we feel changed that we have to change our desires, be more like God, be more like Christ? My answer is that Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. Have you ever been asked to do something that you felt was just way beneath you? Someone asked you to do something, you thought, oh, that's just so beneath me. I'm so way past that. You felt, well, I'm just too good for that. Maybe, you know, I'm a little too old to be doing those sort of things. You're too experienced. Maybe at work, you've climbed up the ladder to a certain point that you're, you're a little bit higher than to be doing certain things. You don't clean the bathrooms. You don't clean after other people. That's not my job. My job is not to pick up the trash. My job is to preach. My job is to lead. My job is to do manage, do all those kind of things. Did you ever do something for people who would end up not appreciating your efforts? You did something and no one appreciated what you did. 
They would even reject your act of kindness. Have you ever had that happen to you? You did something kind for somebody, and they even disregarded it. They rejected it. They didn't want it. Did you ever have to do something so lowly as wash, wash someone's feet? Jesus did. Jesus did. He did all those things and incredibly more. We cannot begin to compare our ideas of suffering. We can't begin to compare all our ideas of what we think is right compared to what Jesus did. Think about what this passage is saying. He was equal with God. He was divine. He was there in eternity, in existence. He was the creator of all things. Yet he humbled himself. He didn't take that authority. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus, what did he tempt him with? Reveal yourself now. If you are the Son of God, reveal yourself in front of all these people. Jump down from the temple and call the angels to raise, raise you up. Show yourself. Jesus at any moment could have done that. When he was on the cross, what was he mocked with? If you are the Son of God, why don't you bring yourself down? You, you healed everybody else. You raised the dead before. Save yourself. But he didn't. He didn't do it. The mission wasn't complete. When we ask, well, God, why can't we just live the way we want to live? Be a little bit selfish. After all, we only have so many years on this earth. It's because of Jesus. He says, not only am I going to tell you what to do, instruct you what to do, I'm going to model for you what to do. I'm going to inspire you to change, and I'm going to enable you to change. He modeled obedience. See, obedience obedience is a mental act of humility, right? When parents, when we were, as kids, when our parents told us what to do, our, our often instinct is like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it now. I'll do it later. Maybe I won't do it later. I don't know why you keep telling me what to do. But when we obey, we are submitting ourselves to the authority of our parents. When your boss tells you something to do, you have a decision to make. You can do it, or you can say, I forget you. Someday I'm going to be your boss. Obedience is an act of humility. It's a training of humility. As kids, we learn humility from our parents so that we can learn to be obedient to God. If we're not obedient to our parents, do you expect to be obedient to God? I'm not just talking to the young people. I'm talking about to us. Because we all experience that. Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Conclude with this verse. In Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Think about that. The creator of the universe, the creator of you and me, humbled himself to die on the cross for you and me. 
And we would have the audacity to tell God how we ought to live our life. That we would have the nerve to tell God we know what's best. Why do we believe? Because who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus Christ, being equal with God, poured himself out, humbled himself, took on the nature of a slave. From the highest position to the lowliest, Jesus took on human flesh, humbled himself in complete obedience and submission to the Father. Why? To give you renewed life. To give you hope. Look, our lives is not contained just in this earth for whatever years of life that we have. I don't know how much longer we're going to live. I realize I'm about, at best, halfway point. At best. But tomorrow's not guaranteed for us. But what Paul is saying, he's telling the church, he says, look, the attitude I tell you was the attitude in Christ. Follow Christ. He showed us the way for you and I. He gives us a reason to believe. He gave us every reason to believe. Every reason. When Paul says, live your life worthy of the calling, he's saying, think of what Christ did for us and live your life worthy of that. Not meaning that we're going to earn it. We'll never be able to earn it. We'll never be good enough for the price. But Jesus did it for us anyways. Praise God. He wants the best for us. He wants us to spend eternity with Him. He said, look, believe in me. Believe me. Follow me. I'll end with this little anecdote. I didn't plan for this, but I don't know if this will work. When you're teaching your kids something, sometimes you want to do it first to show them it's okay. It's safe. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they won't. It's a matter of conquering their fear or their worry. We say, do it, and you will enjoy it. Sometimes it applies, sometimes it doesn't. I've tried that with roller coasters. I'm like, look, I'll go on the roller coaster. Come with me, experience it. It's fun. (laughs) Sometimes that works. Sometimes that strategy doesn't work. But Jesus says, look, I gave you the model. I give you every reason to believe. Trust me. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we just lift this time up to you. Lord, you gave us every reason to believe. You humbled yourself. Lord, can we humble ourselves before you? You humbled yourselves for our sake, for our good, for our sin, for our debt. 
can we humble ourselves before you? Reveal yourself to each person here today. If someone doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, they've struggled with their faith, struggled to believe, may they know you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior who died for them and rose again for them that they may also live. We praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.